Hi there, and welcome to the Skylight Books author reading series. If you'd like to learn more about us and our many upcoming author events, please visit skylightbooks.com, where you can browse our inventory, buy books, and join our Friends with Benefits Club. You can also follow us on Twitter, Tumblr, and Facebook. To speak to a real live bookseller, please call 323-660-1175. Thanks for your support, and enjoy. If you got your books, hold them up. If you don't, the hell, I've got children to support. Aw, <laughs> <laughs> uh, you guys are so pretty. Thank you. Uh, so, what do you want to talk about? Um, so, the way I thought we would do this is I, I'm going to read like a little bit, um, but you know, having run a reading series for five years, what I know is if you read any more than like four or five minutes, no matter how gorgeous the prose is, um, people kind of either want to die or want you dead, so longer than that. And then normally, like, the way I like doing readings is like, especially for something like this, is doing like an in-conversation thing, but I've been to those and they get like super precious because it's just an author and another author and they talk about crap. So instead, we're going to have, we have a bunch of like writers, but also beloved friends who I love dearly, and they're just going to be like peppering me with all of their shit. So it's just going to be a free-for-all. And then, but you guys ask me stuff, everybody asks me stuff, and let's just hang out. I brought wine, I brought food, now I guess I'm going to read to you um, from this book, which I've been kind of calling um, a very unexpected love story because it was unexpected to the characters in the story and it was very unexpected to me um, when I started out writing it. And my wife can attest to this because it was a very different book when I began it than when I ended it. <clears throat> um, and it's taken a very interesting kind of circuitous route um, to the present story that it is. And I'm grateful that I had the good sense when I saw what was happening in the story to step back and just get out of their way and let them find each other the way that they did. So um, we, we'll probably talk more about this. I'm not going to bore the shit out of you right now. But the, the book came out of research I did for my first novel, Illuminous. It actually arose out of a photograph that was taken by the woman who formed the basis of the character in The Luminist of this young boy, um, this, this young black boy in 1868. He's dressed in this photo, which is in the Getty archives, and you can find it online if you look up Alamayu, you'll see this photo most likely. Um, he's, he's, he's dressed the way a colonial English person would expect someone from Africa to be dressed. So they put teeth around his neck, he's holding a spear and a shield, and it's, it's chilling, and it's depressing, um, and it's, it's infuriating. But there's something about his face that he is at once so lonely, but also so resilient. And when I was writing The Luminist, I knew I just needed to find out who this kid was. Um, and I put it aside until I finished. And when I went back, I discovered the following, which is the backdrop, the historical backdrop of the story. In 1868, the emperor of Abyssinia, which is now Ethiopia, um, Tewedros, essentially brought forward a delegation from England because he wanted weapons. And Queen Victoria told him no. So he took that delegation hostage, and England responded in 1868 by invading, much the way we invaded Iraq. It was a mismatch, and the country was decimated. And the antiquities were taken from Abyssinia. They're still at the Royal Albert Museum, if you ever want to see them. Um, Tewedros, in life, killed himself rather than being taken hostage. Alamayu's mother died on the trek back with the British Army. So by the time they reached the bay, and the edge of the world that Alamayu had known as a 10-year-old, everyone he knew was dead. So they took him, and they brought him to England forcibly, and they made him a ward of Queen Victoria in Queen Victoria's court. And so the fact that this kid, in, at the time this photo was taken, had just gotten off of the ship, was the trigger point for the story, which has become a love story between Alamayu and a fictional character named Philip, who serves as his translator and his conduit to the English world. And then he, they discover that they love each other, but circumstances threaten to pull them apart. So that is the backdrop and the summary of the night language. And I think I'll just, should I just read like a little bit of the beginning? And then, 
and then stop. Author's <laughs> choice. Was that yes or was that like God? Oh, just like, read already. Just shut up. Just read. Okay. Uh, all right. So here's how. So although the story, the the heart of the story takes place in between 1868 and 1870, um, the story begins in December 1900, some years later, and it starts like this. <clears throat> At last, some daylight. The sun broke through in the afternoon following two days of thick black clouds and downpours that had him spending his holiday running from doorway to cafe canopy. Now, finally, he could paint. He unpacked his canvas and set up his easel on the path that ran along the blue ribbon of sea between Nice and Monaco. Mixing his oils, he gazed at the vista before him, acquainting himself with the particular shades of sunlight and the way they teased both color and shape from the land. Already he painted a good deal of the distant village and in just two days' time. A wonderful two days, he thought, in which he got thoroughly lost in his composition while occasionally humming a forgotten adagio. He worked without interruption, oblivious to everything around him, thinking of nothing, only colors, tones, rims, and borders. Fellow visitors may have passed him by as he worked or not. Via Franche clustered under the gold, soft, the soft gold dust of the sun's rays breaking through the last cloud cover left by the passing storm. It was built up against a striated wall of rust-colored rock some 600 feet high. Above the tile roofs of the homes in the cathedral, wispy tendrils lifted from the cooking fires of restaurants and cafes. Gulls soared down from the ledge in a tight arrow, passing the zigzagging switchback trails carved into the cliff face. In the light, they resembled falling bodies clad in white. Their shadows bent across the cliffs as they abruptly pulled out of their dive just before hitting the foaming waves. They flew close, their outstretched wings ruffling the surface of the sea. The wind they rode was cold and strong. He weighted his easel with stones, then daubed at the cliff paths with a mix of sienna and bay to catch the smoothing effect of the last day's rains. As he worked, enjoying the pleasant briskness of the air and the faint sounds of the village townspeople emerging from their homes, he took notice of a sleek canoe drifting in on the tide toward the natural stone jetty that stood as the town's lone port. Such an unremarkable thing, visitors on an outing to the Mediterranean town. The area had gained a reputation for its agreeable weather, its flourishing casinos and fine hotels. The fact that the boat he spied was filled stem to stern with finely dressed ladies in broad seaside hats and immaculate dresses of milk and wheat shouldn't have held his attention for more than a moment. And yet, he couldn't reclaim the sense of disappearing into his work that he craved, not while the ornate canoe drifted toward the land. Muttering curses at his own inability to concentrate, he watched the ladies gather around a figure on the canoe, a woman dressed entirely in black. It seemed that they were trying to shield her. The chill, he thought, or the prying eyes of others. Perhaps she was someone of note. He'd come to Villafranche from Paris for the same reason he always did. The city would grow too hot, too cold, or too close, and he'd find that he needed to step away from his days living and working in the Marais to be alone at the water's edge, staring at the low, leaden horizon line. There had been far too many tourists on his last few visits, and he'd begun considering other destinations he could escape to before deciding to give the spot one last chance. In any event, it was best to catch the light before him while it lasted. If he just set to working again, he felt confident that he'd make progress. The painted cliff path looked good, so he turned his attention to the cove at the base of the village, an excuse to watch the canoe, its oars lifted and surrendered to the pull of the tide. The local was piloting it, he could tell. They knew how fruitless it was to row once they got close to the stone jetty. I'll watch just a bit longer, he decided. Maybe this is a new painting presenting itself to me. The black-clad figure struggled to her feet. She was immediately surrounded by the finely dressed women. A rich invalid, no doubt. He selected a thin horsehair brush and daubed a bit of gray on Via Franche itself, on its narrow sidewalks that a grown man could span wall to wall with outstretched arms, its descending stairways down to the sea path in the first shades of aqua. The woman in black got out of the canoe, followed closely by the others. Her baggy, overly billowing clothing was in fact a formal dress. It was dark and jeweled with some sort of stone that ignited from the sunlight. The woman herself appeared small, stooped, unsteady, and slow. A rich, old invalid, he thought with a shake of his head. Still, he couldn't stop staring. A sense of unease slowly rose in him. This is ridiculous, he thought, but the feeling wouldn't go away. As the rest of the elderly woman's entourage stepped onto the jetty, a second boat floated in. It was as full as hers had been with similarly dressed women. 
They got out en masse, dislodging the feral cats, sunning themselves atop and between the jetty stones. So this was some sort of idyllic invasion, he thought, the first wave of dowagers on holiday, marching their staffs across the path to the small stakes baccarat tables at Monaco. He tried to amuse himself, but his hands were trembling. Without being aware, he put down his brush. He was stepping away from his canvas, gazing around his position on the path for places to hide. It had been years since he felt so conspicuous and exposed. A voice from long ago filled his head. We could run. Calm yourself, he thought. What will passersby think of me? Searching for where to go to ground like a criminal. There's no reason for this. There's nothing to be afraid of. Nothing. He stared at the black-clad figure until she was close enough to make out. Dear God, it's her. Victoria, Queen of England. The shuffling old woman's companions produced parasols. One held hers high above her head, blocking the sun and extinguishing the flare that burst from the queen's crown. Move, you idiot, before she sees you. He ran for cover behind a tall row of wild heather. From there, he spied her no more than 20 feet away. Those few villagers out walking were now realizing who moved among them as if such a thing were normal. They bowed and curtsied and cheered her. God, how old she'd become, how ungraceful. Time, he thought, wins every argument. It was her daughter Louise who held the parasol up like a shield against the insistent sun. More than 30 years had passed since he'd last seen either of them at Windsor, and suddenly there they were, walking together in another country, and not 50 feet from him. Behind them came the usual downstairs help, brought from their normal posts in liveries and dressing rooms out into the light. A lady-in-waiting, a footman, a valet, no one he knew anymore. The queen walked toward the shoreline, passing his easel while her entourage huddled together against the wind. She lingered a moment at his painting, studying it and smiling <coughs> wistfully. She looked around for the artist, but he was well hidden. At the sea, the queen stared at the coming tide. Clouds crept in from the south, covering the sun. The light dwindled. The village by the sea descended into the steely gloom he'd grown used to over the last days. He remembered that way the queen had of losing herself in her surroundings. Watching her, he wondered if she ever thought of him anymore. Perhaps the passage of all those years had finally swept his name away. Her time alone lasted 15 minutes, maybe longer. As the breeze grew bitter, Louise covered her mother's shoulders with an ermine wrap. The queen leaned against her daughter for support. They returned together to the sea path. There the queen paused again near the painting. Fleetingly, he thought he saw something alight in her expression, then it was gone, replaced by a familiar stony resolve. Are you well? he heard the princess ask. You look pale, mother. Perhaps we should return home. No. The queen's voice was hushed and trembling. Let us have our holiday. We ought not allow the odd memory to ruin our time. Memory? Is something troubling you? No more than any day. <clears throat> Together they continued toward the path and soon to the crags of the jetty where their entourage split into two. The larger group clambered onto the waiting boats. The pilots pulled them away from land onto the swelling crests of the port current. The remaining few walked behind the queen and princess. Every so often the queen paused to rest. Her servant staff waited, heads bowed, for her to move again. Well, of course, he thought. She's old. Ill, maybe. Nothing and no one is forever. Feeling a pang for someone I haven't seen in three decades is sentimental and foolish. Any moment the queen and princess would be so far away that they'd never see him, and he could emerge from his hiding place and pick up where he'd left off, carrying on as if nothing had happened. Yet he wanted to cry out to her to see if she'd turn around. Would she come back to him? What would she say? What would he? Your Majesty, you can't simply appear as if out of a cloud. Rain down all that you carry that rightfully belongs to me, the names, the faces, the nights, only to leave while these memories invade me without regard for my life, to demand that I find a place for them? You can't. When she was merely a speck on the path alongside the light-dappled sea, he emerged from the hedge and told himself that it was time to go. There'd be no more painting and it was useless to pretend otherwise. His focus and desire were gone. Tomorrow he'd get things sorted. Yes, he'd seen her true enough, and maybe some memories were dusting themselves off and presenting themselves, but that was all. Nothing had changed. It didn't matter. He could simply paint in the early morning, return to Paris on the evening train, arrive near dawn after a few hours' sleep, then unpack and resume the day's work and the next. The life he'd made was still there, waiting for him. He was in no danger of being revealed. He didn't hear the villagers' excited talk of glimpsing the queen or the sea that had silently brought her. Only his panicking heart and long-ago words ringing as clear as the bell at St. Paul. What is love in the end? Love is language. 
He packed his easel, then turned around on the path that led back to his villa and walked along the sea, trailing the queen until she came to a far dock near one of the fine hotels dotting the coastline. There she stopped again. In time, she gathered the strength to go back inside. By evening, she hadn't come out. It was over, this unexpected earth unearthing of old things from another far different life. All he had to do was leave. He took a seat on a rusted seaside bench and watched lights come up in the hotel windows. Over the course of the night, those lights extinguished. The storm clouds returned but didn't bring rain, only a covering that smothered the stars and took the light away. He could scarcely make out the contours of his hand held up to the sky. It was as if he'd been erased from the world. Somewhere inside, the queen slept. He wondered if the ghosts of her own past gathered around her as they did around him. When she departed in the bright morning, he was still there. For the next three days, he followed her through France. Thanks, you guys. So, so then, you know, stuff happens and stuff. So, um, so this is when, like, in the normal reading, we would sit down and we'd have a very, like, you know, quiet conversation with wine. But instead, like, murderer's row of, of my dear and loving writer friends are here. And just, and for all you guys, whatever you want to know, whether it's, like, something about the book or just, just something about something or just you just want to get nuts, um, Anybody who's been to Rorschach knows that, you know, it, it is what it is, and we, we usually try to just make it as fun as possible. So I shall open the floor to questions. <laughs> Ms. Hunter. So, um, I'm a hundred so I know mm -hmm. that Are you going to keep reading, or are you done? I got it. All right. It's fair. It's fair. It's hurtful, but it's fair. It's Um, definitely the latter. I, I know that there are writers who write thematically, and they, they want they want to write about a theme. They want to they want to make their work um, speak to a particular a particular notion or perhaps a particular moment in the time we're living in. I mean, certainly for this book, um, when I started writing it, it was a really different world than the one it's coming out of. You know, um, I certainly didn't um, intend when I started writing this book to have it be, as, as somebody put it the other day, this intersectional book. Um, I always write a story about people. And I'm not, I mean, I'm, I'm married to a psychoanalyst, so insert your own joke here, but I'm never aware of the themes that I'm working with until it's over. And even then, I'm super close to it, and then, you know, Nina will be like, well, yeah, that's your dad. And I'll be like, that's not my dad. That's my writing. And you don't know. Oh, shit, it kind of it's is my dad. It's never his dad. It's his mother. <laughs> you, know, how, you know, how dare you people laugh at the artist up here? Um, no, it's true. I'm, I'm never really quite aware of, of what I'm working with. And so it was definitely not a conscious decision to um, have the characters express themselves in... Um, most directly and pertinently in silent ways. But at the same time, now I'm, I'm sort of two for two on these books where I'm drawn to the, I mean, mothers. you know, not mothers, <laughs> leave mo my mother out of it. But, so this is, this is kind of my prevailing philosophy is I long to arrest all beauty that came before me. And in some ways, that's what these characters are all after. That's actually a quote from Julia Margaret Cameron who formed the basis of The Luminous. This idea that these moments are gone as, as you say, the moment you paint something, the moment you take a photograph, it's already gone. You can't really do much except hold that moment, which is past now. And so to me, I think there is some need in me to kind of go beyond just holding the moment. I want to explicate the moment, and I want to find the story in the moment, and I want to celebrate the story in the moment. And so for these characters, particularly the character of Alamayu, um, roughly 100 pages in, where he's still somewhat non-communicative because he's not quite mastered the language. The, this silent expression is how he 
lets people know what's happening. And it's the silences, it's the, it's the hand gestures that he and Philip in the story work out that begin to express what becomes love. Um, and that to me, it's, I think maybe that's why I write in the past. It's just more poignant to me than just texting somebody I heart you. You know, there's just not there's not as much um, weight and moment and maybe a little touch of a little tinge of tragedy attached to more modern forms of communication to me, which is not to say I don't love modern everything, I do, but certainly in my stories, including the one I'm working on now, the new one, <clears throat> I'm drawn to period stuff. I, I don't know why. So it was not it was not intended. Yes, the woman in the back in pink in the beret who happens to be my daughter. <laughs> um, I have two things to say. The first thing is just a, a more of a comment instead of a question. Mm -hmm. I just want to say that... This isn't going to be about like my parenting, right? It's just, <laughs> let's keep it to writing tonight. Okay. Um, I just want to say that, uh, you know, obviously you're, you're my dad, but as an artist myself, that I've always really enjoyed the fact that even when you started this discussion, when you said that you had one idea for how it was supposed to be and that kind of developed without your position in it. Mm -hmm. And I think I just wanted to say that I really respect, uh, I think, when it comes to art, sometimes a lot of us is wanting it to be a certain way, mm -hmm. and we have to take a step back and be like, well, this might be harder or more honest, but this is the way that it actually is. Mm -hmm. And I just want to say that as your daughter, I've always oh, gotten that you. from you, and I really respect the fact that you kind of Um, mm -hmm. I know that you've been traveling and doing the book reading, and I was just wondering if there were any kind of funny stories mm -hmm. that have happened along the way. I also know that you read with Lovely Snicket, mm -hmm. who, when I was in first grade, my teacher came up to me and told me to stop emulating him so hard. So I just want to know what that was like and if anything happened along the way. Um, oh, yeah. yeah. <laughs> so. He's a really interesting guy, um, and yes, and why there are words Sausalito, so if anybody has ever read what that series or has been to Sausalito, you know the crowd. The crowd is not you guys, it's not like a really like cool, diverse, fun crowd, it's, it's Chardonnay sipping, older, relatively conservative white people, and so Daniel Handler, aka Lemony Snicket, at why there are words, I followed him because we were alphabetical, and he... He's touring and he read from his new novel, which is a very slim novella called All the Dirty Parts, <laughs> which is written from a perspective. And, and so the preface to this is, you know, as I mentioned, it's a different world that this book is coming into than the one I wrote in. The one I wrote in was kind of like, and maybe I was naive, it was the world I sort of hoped we were, you know, with the president I was proud of and, you know, a celebration of inclusiveness and diversity as opposed to this nightmare shit that's going on right now. So I've always had this little question in my mind as to how this, where will this book find home? You know, kind of in our new world, um, beyond sort of our community, which I'm gonna be lavishing you with tearful praise in a moment, but because of the fact that you guys are here and celebrating this with me and I'm, I love you guys and I'm grateful. But the rest of the world we know is not necessarily that. So it's with this question that I kind of go out to different places now with this book. And so he went first, and All the Dirty Parts is a very slim novel written from the perspective of a teenage boy who is sex-obsessed. He is Holden Caulfield with an internet porn addiction. And it was super graphic. Like, like I can't, I don't even want to talk about how graphic it was because there's like at least one little one in the room. But Damn! And so, like, it's basically, we were about as close to the audience as I am to you right now, except it was a different audience. And so they were all like, Daniel Handler, I love it. I read his book to my child. And then, three sentences in, they were like, <laughs> and just everything just froze. And the more, the more he read, the more they were like, And so after, and so I mean, it's basically, you know, he read for like eight minutes. He's like, and and then the the shot popped in her eye. Thanks everybody, and he got and he got down. He's like, and now David Rockman will read. And I'm like, and I get up and I'm, you know, the ink and everything else, and I get up and I'm like looking at everybody, and they're just kind of like, oh god, and you know, like hands were sort of shaking, and the Chardonnay was, it looked like Jurassic Park. And so I, I just get up there and I say, um, 
so my book is a love story, and it's set in 19th century England, and it's, it's a love story between two young black men who find each other in Queen Victoria's court, and this older white woman in the front row goes, oh, thank God. <laughs> And for a second, I was just like, and then I'm like, I found my people. And so Daniel Handler was kind enough to actually buy a copy of the book and sign it, and then I signed his, and in mine to his, I wrote down, please open for me everywhere I go. Because I just, I look good. So that's, and that was like night number one. So, you know, all bets are off. Whatever's going to happen, I know it's going to happen. It should be, should be interesting. Right, I, yes, sir, fellow Krav. Uh, I, uh... Technically, under the terms of the Skylight contract, if you haven't received it, you need to buy ten right now. Oh, okay. <laughs> yeah. I knew this was a guarantee. Yeah, um, yeah. Second question. All right. So, speaking to the current climate politically, mm -hmm. uh, you and I were supposed to talk about this. Uh, I know. Interview, we still need to do our podcast. But I'm just going to throw it out there. Right, yeah, yeah. So, as a non-black, non-gay man. Mm -hmm. And in, in the era of right now where everything's mm -hmm. cultural appropriation, eat Chinese food or, you know, on campus have sushi, like how do you feel as a writer, like, you know, what do you, what do you feel about that kind of an encroaching aspect of uh, this or cultural appropriation? Um, I, so it, it just as an opinion, not like, right, right, right. Not, you know, putting on anything on Just as like my opinion. Yeah. <laughs> so I think that, um, it's funny because obviously the question comes up like okay I mean I've, I've had the question put to me in various terms right. including what right do you have to write this story and so I think when I hear other artists of different genres and different you know millions and different types address this question I'm sometimes struck by the anger and the irritation they feel at getting the question right. and I think to myself well aren't you now the problem? Okay. Because you're getting, the, you, you've written, you've crossed over into an area that culturally you don't belong to, and you're, you're writing, and I, I trust artists' instincts to want to explore for the benefit of sharing and empathizing and building a bridge and understanding and connecting with, as opposed to appropriating and stealing and profiting off of. I like to think that my radar is decent enough that I can spot the difference between like a Rachel Dolezal and somebody who is simply writing a story about someone different than them, which frankly as a writer I hope I always get to do. But I think the answer to the question of like what right do you have is I have zero right. None. I have no God-given right and if I thought I did, I am the problem. As I, I mean I'm Jewish so I belong to a culture that has been victimized and appropriated from. But I'm also a white male, and I recognize that as I stand here, I stand in the shoes of somebody who culturally, historically, has appropriated more from anybody than anybody else. And so for me to feel like I have a right to anybody else's story that doesn't exactly fit me, I think would be not only sort of um, presumptuous, but patriarchal and the problem. So. I don't have a right. What I have is like a desire and a curiosity and an empathy to break. I, I don't want to write or read any more about me. I know me. I live with me. Mostly uneasily, but I, li I live with me. <laughs> so, you know, if, if everybody who, in here who are writers, we all get that, that cliche of write what you know, and hopefully we all get the good sense at some point to move away from that and start writing what you don't know, or writing what you don't want anyone to know, and really trying to get into more depthful places with your writing. Um, imagine if the, the instruction you were given is write what you are, and only write what you are, and do not write what you are not. Forget about there be no more interesting writing. Um, I depend on artists to tell me about the worlds I don't know. If I don't know what a starry night looked like off the coast of a, of a small village in Europe, I go to a museum and I look at a painting. And I depend on that artist to tell me what it was like, and by what it was like, not factual, but express to me what you felt. And if I don't understand what a sentient computer is, I need Stanley Kubrick to tell me about the possibilities. You know, and if I don't know what a, a, a non 44 time song should be, I need Chris Squire to lay a baseline down so I can understand it. I, I need
artist to take me where I can't go. I don't know how to go, and I've never been. And so maybe what I do is in part from a desire to be that for somebody else, but also to understand it for myself, to, to learn about it, to experience it, and hopefully to present it in a way that allows all of us to see something that we haven't seen before and realize how different and yet how amazingly similar it is to us. Um, but I hope to do it respectfully. I hope to do it accurately. Um, I hope never to rely upon a cliche or a stereotype or some hoary piece of crap sensibility that comes from someplace that is patriarchal and domineering and appropriating. Um, and I know like in my heart why I'm doing it. And so the best thing I can ever hope for is somebody opens this book and they see in it why I really needed to write it. And maybe we're all just human, right? Yeah, exactly. exactly. No, no one said to Euripides, you can't write Lysistrata. Don't go over my head like that. <laughs> no one said to uh, whoever wrote Memoirs of a Geisha, mm -hmm. oh, I'm sorry, you're a man, you can't write about that. Right. Yes, they have, actually. Yeah, no, they, they, <laughs> well, they have. Yeah, and I have a feeling like if that book was if that book came out within the last two years, he, he would be in right, that I'm conversation. Just saying, just the current climate, right. Climate. Yeah, I think that's, that's right. I mean, yeah, but I think your question kind of went beyond that into areas like trigger warnings and safe spaces in college, and that's a whole other conversation, and, you know, there are folks... No, no, I just wanted to know, like, what you, were you yeah. getting any gum, basically? Yeah. And how would you respond to it? Right. And you responded to it. Just oh, thank you. you. And it was great. Episode. Oh, thank you. Okay. I appreciate that. Uh, I'll get to you again. Yeah, well, I just, his question made me think of another question, so... Um, as somebody as, that is a writer, that I'm a musician, uh, that I came from poetry, and for me, like when you talk about like, writing what you know, for me, I always do write about myself. Mm -hmm. So I was just wondering more on the technical aspect of it, like how did you get yourself into be somebody else's perspective, especially when some of these characters are historical, like mm -hmm. real people that mm -hmm. existed? Like what was the research that went into that? Because for me, like I. I try to put myself in different perspectives, but I find that it always comes off of that contrived. Right. So, like, I write with who I am because there's nobody that knows myself better than I do. So, except it, your parents. <laughs> <laughs> what, what did you do when it came to some of the historical characters, like, to really get um, that? Yeah, I think besides just you know, like a year and a half of research, um, that doesn't help you. That helps you understand the world they're standing in. Um, but what it really comes down to for me is, at a certain point, um, I have to feel that these are not characters I'm talking about, but people are not. And so I have to spend enough time with them that it feels not like a story I've made up, but something I'm remembering that happened to me a long time ago. And that's why it's involved yeah. into you stepping away and saying, yeah. what would these characters do? Yeah, I mean, and I, there, there are so many writers in this audience, and, and I don't know if people have the same experience, but. The thing that always fills me with fear when I'm starting something brand new is outlining it and then starting it and then finishing it and realizing that I got to the end of it and I never deviated from the outline. I promise you it's dead on the page. It's not worth anything and I'll toss it. If it, if it doesn't change, if it doesn't surprise you, it would be like the equivalent of like, so like one of um, newer writers that I've come to know and I'm just getting to know is Jess right there. We don't know each other very well. We've maybe spoken like a couple of times. So how obnoxious would it be for me to say, based upon 10 minutes of conversation and some emails, I can predict what our friendship will be five years from now? There's no way. You know, you, you don't know where something's going to go until you spend the time, until you, until you are experiencing it over time. Same thing with characters. You know, until if, if, if what you thought they were going to do is exactly the same at the very end of a 300-page book, which takes you two years, as it was at the beginning, when all you had is a rough outline, those characters never came to life. If they start suggesting to you in their ins you know, insidious ways that, hey, you know that plot point that you thought I was going to get to by page 100? By now, you must know I wouldn't do that. That's not who I am. Now something's happening. Now it's cool. So, you know, it's not so much that I... This is going to sound so touchy-feely, it's obnoxious, I want to slap myself, but it's, it's not um, that I'm doing anything to like create these characters that are different from me. I'm giving them room to express themselves based upon who they are in relation to their world, and they're kind of telling me what they would do. 
and I'll just get out of the way. <coughs> Sir? Uh, yeah, well, so I, uh, my book did come with a manual. I finished it. So. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> um, it, it is not a, 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 a piece of cultural appropriation. I will say that. It's a work of art. Thank you. Um, was there anything in the uh, what you know about Queen Victoria mm -hmm. that would support her being such a sympathetic character? I never nope. thought of her. I mean, I, I, I'm just saying she's it's it's, it's really incredible mm -hmm. to, to to write a novel where Queen Victoria is is, is somewhat so warm. full of soul and love yeah. and heart. You know, I mean, it's amazing. Yeah, I mean, Queen Victoria in life was a colonialist. She was a thief of culture. She was a continent destroyer. She was a horrible mom. I mean, she, you know, her kids never saw her except by appointment. She was cold and distant and, and severe. Um, and at the same time, you know, Alamayu, the character in life, died when he was 17 of pleurisy. And so, and that his his story particularly. I mean, when when I'm starting to write something, it's almost always because something visual has collided with something factual in my brain. It happened in The Luminous, where I saw the images that Julia Margaret Cameron created, and then I found out she lost a child at birth. The collision of the image and the fact is where the story came from. In the Night Language, the image of Alamayu in life as a child that I described collided with the fact that he died at 17. And what came out of it was a need on my part to write for him a life that he never got to live. And so that, to me, of course, is a love story. Um, and so in my writerly brain, which pretty much makes me feel like, ah, I'll change stuff. You know, um, I felt like I need the life that he escaped in the novel was bad enough. And so I felt like I needed some outward manifestation of his ability through just sheer force of will and force of the love that he had to carve the life for him that he needed to have finally. And that meant bringing a very, very distant, cold, powerful matriarch over to his side. And when that started happening on the page, even though that's historically not at all the case, she had a menagerie of, of I mean, let's just be honest, she had a menagerie of dark-skinned children that she maintained for appearance purposes. To be able to say, look at these, look at these orphans, look what I do for them. And they never saw her, and they never interacted with her, and they were essentially, um, there's a segment in the book that, in the very beginning, that set up what's called a human zoo. Those were real. Um, she essentially had a very fancy one um, for the orphans of wars that her country itself started. But Again, what I needed was, a, was an externalization of Alamayu's ability through just the, just the force of his good, scared heart to craft a life for himself, and she became that externalization. But yeah, she's certainly not accurate. You tied it into Albert, though, the relationship you Yes, the fact that she missed him. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because I, I like to think that there was some humanity in her, and she did. She never got over him. I mean, Windsor... Um, and Buckingham House, all those places were, were kept in a constant state of mourning until her own death. She never, despite her dalliances with Mr. Brown, you know, that had been kind of recounted in film, she never in public went outside of um, what she, they called the widow's weave. She was always in black. She made everything in the castle black. She, was all, she, she maintained her staff in a constant period of mourning. She never let it go publicly. But I like to think in her private moments there was actually a beating heart in there somewhere, and that's what I tried to tried to do. Yes, ma'am. Okay. You're on a deserted island, <laughs> <laughs> and you ha you're either stuck with the Fountainhead <laughs> or the Fifty Shades of Grey trilogy. <laughs> <laughs> you also have plenty of firewood. <laughs> that was going to be my answer. What else? Uh, I, I have plenty of firewood, so I can't burn any of them. Oh. Um, 
stop pretending to think about this. <laughs> well, it's, you know, look, I mean, the question really comes down to um, masturbation versus intellectual deficit and death. Um, Wait, which is which? Yeah, exactly. Hey, look, aim at his eye. Oh, I'm not going to lie. Oh, you know what? I need to laugh while I'm slowly dying of starvation. I'll go 50 shits. <laughs> That was awesome. I, there's got to be a way to pay you back for that. Uh, what else can I tell you guys before I just let you loose on the craft table? Yes, ma'am. You said new book. What's your new book about? I mean, I know that we're here for this book, but also, like, how, how are you balancing inviting this new book with all the things you yeah. Um, You know, it's remarkable what you can do when you just don't sleep. And, and just live on a steady diet of, of Earl Grey and meth. So, uh, so the new one, um, it's funny, I, with, right after this book sold, I was talking with my agent. She's like, okay, so what are you working on now? And I said, okay, I'm actually, I've, I've got something. She's like, all right, tell me. Because this was, you know, I mean, the, as I think I may have mentioned, the question for this one was always, who is the audience for this book? And I kind of always believe that the audience is just somebody who feels that love is a universal experience and that the kind of love that sacrifices in the name of itself is something that I hope people can relate to. But still, you know, it was a question of finding a home for it. And my publisher, Tyson and Julia, they've been amazing to me in giving this and other writers in this room a home for fiction that doesn't involve girls on trains and girls who are gone. We have those too. We totally have those. But it's, it's just, it's a joyful, um, I mean, this is, this is a home. I mean, these people are—they have my back, and it's just been pure joy. But um, so when I talked to my agent, she's like, "All right, tell me what you're working on next." And I said, "Okay, you ready?" She's like, "Yeah." I'm like, okay. It's a love story. She's like, "I'm in." And it's set against the accidental discovery of the electroencephalogram. <laughs> and that was exactly what happened on the phone. And, and then there was this sort of uncomfortable quiet. And then she's like, can you just not do one goddamn thing for me? Can you just not do? And I said, no, 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 It's because it, it involves um, war, love, near-death experience, and the mysterious transmission of a, of a spontaneously outcried, terrified scream across great distance so that somebody else hears it in their mind and knows at that moment that someone is about to die. And then the, like sort of the white whale-like search for where in the brain that happened. And of course, once again, that's a love story. So it's, so it's, the working title is The Electric Love Song of Fleischl Berger. And it's, uh, I don't know why I'm clever in that. That's your favorite title? You don't like the night language? I, I mean, What's wrong with the night language? Can we change the cover really fast to the, the electric language of the night or something? Um, and you know, it's right now, it's, it's, Stupid long as I write it. It's re I mean, I handwrite my first drafts. I, 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 I wish I knew how not to, but I don't, so I handwrite the first draft, and right now it is entering its eighth legal pad, and that's like the first, somewhere between the first third and the first half. Excellent. So there'll be some revision. <laughs> um, but I think it's going to be kind of an, I mean, I'm, I'm sort of enjoying it. It's a little bit of a lighter tone. It's a little bit garbish. And it's really just this weird, it's going to be a love story, but it's this weird story about this young man who has a near-death experience, um, turn of the century Germany in the army, and it's heard 100 miles away. And his previous directionlessness gives way to, I have to find out how that happened. And through that search, finds himself in everything from World War I to concentration camps, and the rarefied society strata of Berlin, um, and the, the Weimar silent film era in Germany, um, and love. So, you know, in other words, I'm working with a small palette once again. So <laughs> yes, ma'am. So I teach creative writing, mm -hmm. and three out of eight of my students are lawyers. I'm so sorry. Yes. And their complaints are that they don't have time, um, and that they can't separate their sort of lawyer mind and life from their writing life. And yeah. I said, well, I know someone who does that perfectly. 
So what can I tell them? Because I feel totally helpless in right. trying to, right. to help them figure out how to manage. Right. So the first thing I would say is, hey, did you hear that? Perfectly. They're coming to Thanksgiving, so yeah. Good to so, I mean, there are flaws. We'll continue this conversation. Um, yeah. Uh, how, how is it? Um, so, kind of like a semi-serious answer, I guess. So, like out of law school, um, I kind of, and actually, right here in the front row is someone I went to law school with, who I've known for forever, and um, he also escaped the, the law school law, legal way of life. So, at a certain point, I looked down the road at what a legal background and being an attorney, which I am would bring it. And what I saw was not so much <clears throat> the money or the ability to do stuff. I saw the inability to do stuff. I saw the inability to write and to kind of live the life that I wanted to live. So at a certain point, I kind of made a decision that if you're lucky enough, as we are as writers, and you know, to find that one thing that you sort of feel like this is, this is what I'm supposed to be doing, and like for me, I think we've talked about this when I'm writing. I'm not a religious person. I'm, I was, I'm, I'm very proud to be Jewish, but I'm a, I was raised by atheist wolves, and so that's what I am. But so I don't know what prayer is or does or why anybody does it. But I do know that when I'm writing, there are times when I get to that moment where it just feels like, well, this must be what it feels like, where you're sort of semi kind of in touch with something that's not you, that's beyond you. And I realized I need to protect that. If that's how I feel and if I've found this thing, I've got to protect that in some way. So what I think I'm going to do, which is stupid, is I'm going to structure my entire life around the protection of this thing. And if I do something professionally or in a relationship and it in any way, shape, or form impinges upon my ability to do this thing, it's out. And so that took care of any idea to go to a law firm. There's just no way. One of my dear friends who is an attorney in LA can attest, you're there. I mean, you, when you're in a law firm, it's, it's your life, and there's no way to write. So could I make more money for my family? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> hey, I can make the money for the family. <laughs> and she does, dude. She likes to buy a lot, and it's awesome. I just lay at home and just pop chocolate. <laughs> but, it, it, so I, I just, at, at a certain point, I'm like, I, I, I can't. So what I do, I mean, there are friends of mine from work, we're, it's busy enough to do all the things that we do, but there's still the ability to have some reservoir of energy to write. So it's not like I'm doing something super secret to balance it. It's that I just simply insist that there are lines beyond which I won't go. And if that means like a professional sacrifice, done. You know, because I can sacrifice the, the cachet of a law firm or the cachet of being like a partner at a law firm because I get to do this. So to me, it's just, it's, it, but it's also will, you know? I mean, it's just like, it's really hard and I don't have the time. No, you, what you don't have is the desire and the relentlessness. And that's beyond your, your legal career is keeping you busy. That's something completely different. That's just, you need to ask yourself if you are up for this. You, I mean, you teach, you're exhausted, you're, you're grading papers, there are demands on your time. There are emotional pressures that I wouldn't wish on anybody. You also, like, you know, have generated a gorgeous novel and you're an amazing writer. How do you do that? Because you're balancing something? No, because you're relentless. And I know that about you and I know that about you guys. That's, that's why, I mean, there's no magic to it. We just simply don't take a no or I'm tired for an answer. We just don't know how to do it. Was it that lesson about please don't keep buying the more expensive one? <laughs> Something that I, my whole life, had this the same uh, feeling of like I knew what I was born to do and it was my art and how do I protect that? And what David always told me is you do what you have to do to be able to do what you love. And I think that that's something that he didn't say just now, but came to mind when your law students, like they might have to do what they have to do in their law company or whatever, but still protect. They do it because they're protecting. Yeah. 
That, yeah, she, what she's talking about is the rant that she hears from me pretty much once a year. And it's basically like, if you really love it, then you will do what you need to do to protect it. Because if you don't, if, if, if you allow the art that you're putting out to be compromised in any way because you can't protect it from the forces that would compromise it, like, you know, you believe that the only way to do it is to do it to the exclusion of everything else. So I'm just going to weigh tables, but my main money is going to be from my writing. Well, guess what's going to happen? Unless you're the lucky 1% who can pay for your entire life with writing, what will happen is that somebody will eventually have the power over you to say, if you really want to be paid for this, don't write that. Write this instead. And now your art doesn't belong to you anymore. Now it's something other than what you wanted it to be. And eventually you will resent that, and eventually you will quit. And then you rob us of your voice, and that's not fair to us, so don't do it. You know, find a way to protect your art, insulate your art. I mean, like for me, I make my living, I pay my bills, we pay our bills together, we have this life together where we partner on everything and we're able to do the stuff we need to do. So nobody gets to tell me to not write this, and plenty of people did. But I didn't have to listen because I'm not dependent on the money that this generates um, to, to make my, meet my obligations and kind of live my life. I can make the choice. The worst thing that can happen to me is everybody says, I'm not publishing that. Okay, but I didn't have to change that, so I win. What else? What else? Yes, ma'am. It's, yeah, it's all, you know, I mean, right now there's this gorgeous, gorgeous woman sitting in the front row who's dying to answer this for me. <laughs> dying, dying to answer this for me. Um, you know, so again, I never write thematically, I always Only just, the parts of that is mother. She's really just not in here. Um, but uh, I, I mean, there's, there's always something in me that's going to be in there. And it's, and it's going to be really beyond my recognition until maybe it's all over and I go, oh, that's kind of me. But yeah, as I go back through, I'm in there. You know, in just really weird, buried, veiled ways. <laughs> yeah, but I, it's 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 this weird dichotomy that I that I feel about my writing in that I'll probably never kind of go page fifty six third paragraph that's me. Um, but what I will say is that you know, and I think for the people who know me and you know who I love and, and care about in the writing community and my family and just my friends, um, you guys all know me. But if you really want to truly know, like what it sounds like in here, inside, don't talk to me, read it. Because I, this this goes to places I can't go from just talking. You know what I mean? I'm like, you know, I'm a monosyllabic guy. So, you know, it's like, I can't explain. This, this, this is me. This is just me trying to figure me out orally. Who, who the hell wants to hear that? So, but I'm, yeah, I'm in here. I'm in here. Did you get a tour of Buckingham Palace? No, I haven't been to London yet. I've never been to anywhere. <laughs> <laughs> it's all research. Yeah, so, it's all research. did you, like, do virtual sites, or how do you go about doing that? Yeah, yeah. That's and awesome. I actually had a, a really wonderful correspondence with the Royal Albert Museum. So they kind of gave me like an online virtual tour so I could really see things up close and just get more of like a tactile sense of things. Um, but, you know, I'm, I'm two for two in writing about places that I've never been to, with the Twin Illuminus and this. And every time I kind of feel like, you know, I'm totally going to get something wrong, and I'm sure in some ways I might have, but I also tend to think that it's, it's always a little challenging to write about places that sort of don't exist anymore. You know, like, Sri Lanka exists, Ceylon doesn't. You know, England exists, but 19th century Victorian England kind of doesn't, and Abyssinia sure as hell doesn't. So I just, I try to, you know, you can kind of sacrifice a book on the altar of research if you're not careful, you can just research forever. I tend to research, you know, to understand um, setting, but setting, you know, there's this wonderful quote by a writer named Anne Enright that all description is an opinion of the world. And that's really how I approach research and writing. Um, 
you know, if we, if, if, and this is kind of a writing exercise that I do sometimes, if I take two people here and I just say, take five sentences and describe this room, just physically describe it. Um, but I tell one of them, you've been here before and the last time you were here, you saw a copy of your novel that you worked really hard on, on the table. It was there to be sold. And then I just tell both of them, now, just physically describe the room. Don't get flowery, don't talk about anything other than the room. One person is going to give you a physical description, the other person is going to give you emotional context. They're going to say, this room is bright, this room feels hopeful, this room just makes me feel so good. And why is it different? Because one is a description, one is a description from the context that the person brings to that place. So I try to keep the research always through the eyes of the characters who are living it. If I live in Abyssinia and I'm the emperor versus a slave, my experience of the country is very different and I'm going to be describing everything down to the tip of a spear and a tent and you know a plateau of mountains very different because the way I relate to the world is completely different. So that's, my research stops at a certain point when I've learned a little bit about the times I'm writing in and then it just simply goes very much through the eyes of the characters. And do you ever feel like you take off or do you uh, go back to research things as you find yourself oh, in a new I, I usually am like back into research page by page yeah. because you know somebody um, gets out of the, the the house on Frith that they rented and they need to get someplace and I'm like oh how are they getting there are they walking is it walkable what kind of a carriage would they take how much money did, what what money would they pay how much would it cost how many horses would be on it what does it look like so I'll stop and I'll just try to figure out what that might look like until I can visualize it as if it's happening to me and not just something I'm writing about. Mm -hmm. So it's very stop and start. Yeah. Yes, sir. Two questions. Do you think the King song about Victoria is inaccurate after your research? Thoroughly. Okay. <laughs> the real question is, how, you said your turning point is when you make characters, people you know, mm -hmm. so you're kind of remembering. Yeah. Is there how you do that? Do you just let it marinate? Yeah. Sleep? Time and writing and rewriting. <clears throat> you know, I mean, the rewriting for me is getting to know them. That's why, and maybe I'm just a little more mercenary about this sort of thing, but I kind of don't care if I throw away three or four drafts of a book. You know, I've thrown away thousands of pages. Um, and it doesn't bother me because it's just simply my process of getting to know them. And, getting, and the story doesn't really begin until I feel like I'm more comfortable with them as people. Um, so to me, to get to know them is just to spend time with them. And the only way I know how to spend time with fictional characters besides a 5150 hold is just, <laughs> you know, write them and then rewrite them and keep writing them um, and, and try to figure out why they're doing what they're doing. It's sort of like, my, so there's this thing that I, I've come to call the Grandma Rose Theorem, which it's because my grandmother said it. it had nothing to do with writing and she was kind of salty anyway so it had I mean it was just she liked to curse a lot I don't know where I got I got my from but um, and what she said once to me was if somebody calls you a jackass they're rude but if two people call you a jackass you're a jackass <laughs> and it occurred to me very quickly oh my god that's that's writing feedback if more than one person looks at something you've written and whether they're saying the same thing about it or not, they're all kind of looking at the same thing and it's communicating to them in a way you didn't intend and it's all focused on the same area, you've got a decision to make. I mean, you may not agree with the criticism, but obviously the way you thought it was communicating and the way it is communicating are different, so you need to make a decision now. So to me, when I start seeing the same traits of these characters pop up draft after draft, I realize, oh, I'm getting to know them. This is sticking. Other things are dropping off, other things are changing. The, like the light turns yellow and they're blowing through it this time instead of pausing because they don't seem to be as careful as they were two drops ago. But certain things are staying. And that to me is, you know, it's sort of like you're beginning to get to know this friend. You kind of can predict how they would see things. You're spending time with them. So for me, it's just writing and writing and writing and more writing. I'm so sorry. That's okay. You're awesome. Um, so I remember for the Luminous, you had a dedication to Starbucks because yeah. you were in the majority of the novel there. 
now I can't write at Starbucks anymore. Okay, that was my question. Yeah. So, like, I don't know. did you drink a lot of chai, tea lattes? I've stopped drinking chai. Yeah, now my jam is a matcha green tea latte. Okay, I'm With maybe a little bit of extra sweetening, just because I have the palate of a boy. Also, Starbucks has really bomb chai tea, or matcha latte. They do, I love them. But, um, but so, do you, why are you not writing? Some, I, I, honestly, I don't know why, but something happened. So the Luminous was almost exclusively written in Starbucks to the point where I actually thank them the acknowledgments, which is really just sort of sad. And it wasn't, it was not done. So I'd be like, oh, I hope Starbucks carries it. No, I just really wanted to say thank you guys. I've been sitting in your store for two years now. But for some reason, this one, I couldn't concentrate. This one, I had to write at home, like when it was quiet. And I don't know, yeah, I don't know why. I don't know why. I think just something, some switch just switched to a different setting. And um, it seems to be the case for the new one too. I need to be a little bit more in a quiet space with it um, than in a kind of a boisterous space. But for me, by far, hands down, the best place to write is on an airplane. Just when do we ever get a block of time like that to just simply sit and write and put headphones on? The only time I didn't, so this is like my airplane story. Um, the only time I, I just wasted a flight was I, I got on board and normally it's like my thing is like even before we take off, I put the tray down and I put all my writing out. It's just my way of saying, do not talk to me. Yeah. Don't start a conversation with me. See all the work I have to do? And that's my way of like repelling the people in my row from trying to go, first flight. I don't, I don't want to do that. So this one flight, this young woman sits next to me who's very attractive, and then next to her on the aisle is this older woman, maybe 70-ish or so, and she takes out knitting, literally, and she's knitting. So I'm just like, okay, here I am in my corner writing, not paying attention to you guys, and they can, I can see them sort of looking over and the question of, you know, it's about to come out, but I'm just like resolutely like this. <laughs> and so eventually they turn to each other. <coughs> and I hear them talking, and the young woman asks the older woman, what do, you, what do you do? And she's like, oh, I am the president of a knitting club. We literally travel the country to knitting museums and we discover stitches that have fallen out of favor. And we try to recreate patterns from history. And I'm working on a film. And I'm just sitting there going, <laughs> and then the woman says, and what do you do? She's like, oh, well, I just finished my first film. And the, and the old woman's like, oh my god, that's wonderful. Is it coming to theater? She's like, I'm not sure. It's porn. Um, and at that point, I kind of like, pen down. <laughs> you know, normally, I don't conversation jump, but I really need to know where this is going. <laughs> and so by the time we landed, the, the young woman had gotten contact information for the older woman, because the older woman was going to knit her a blanket because it's cold on the set, and she's naked. And I was like, anybody can talk to anybody. This is the coolest thing ever. But most of the time, I'm sh it's my airplane. Why did I even talk about that? Airplanes are like the best place to Yeah. You're my child, why the fuck am I talking about this? Um, I've gotten through the whole thing without one goddamn Angela Lansbury comment from YouTube. No! No! No, there's, we're, we're out of time. Um, you guys... You're doing more readings. You're doing more So I'll just say one thing right now. I don't hate her. There's this running thing about Angela Lansbury between Ashley, Seth, and I. I don't hate her. I just don't care about her. <laughs> see, the, these two, see, we all, no, look at these two. This is, they're like the quintessential, like, hip, urban, writer, cool couple. The only thing they want to do is stay home and watch Murder, She Wrote Marathon. <laughs> and post pictures of their cat chewing. That's all they do. Don't even. Um, like when, you guys, when you guys posted a picture of the book, you posted it next to a picture of Angela Lansbury. That's how, so that's how deep this goes. Now, right by, by the way, it's Dane Angela Lansbury. Have you been like, what would Queen Victoria think of Dane? She'd be afraid of her because Angela Lansbury, she was the killer. Everybody knows this. A murder she wrote, she murdered all those people. There's too many deaths in that town. There's too many deaths. That town's got like 300 people and 400 murders. That's, there's something, 
Yeah. Oh, yeah. She's a very busy writer yes. and extracurricular. Yes, too. just, you know. Yeah, but you always had to wonder what the odds were, right? Right? That always bothered me. Yeah. She's yes. traveling around the country, essentially. She was and Miss murder, Marvel. People keep getting murdered around her. Follows her. Yeah, exactly. Like she's Miss Marvel. I liked it. <laughs> <laughs> I was like, that's I saw a picture like one day she'll get caught because some young kid's going to run out of the house after she tried to drill his skull like Dahmer style, and then she'll finally be caught and there'll be body parts in her freezer. And I would be very happy that day, and I will call you guys immediately. My mom and I used to watch that show when I was like five. No, see, we're we're so off topic now, you guys. Hey, how's the not landing? Oh, thank you. <laughs> Um, for being amazing, for being a part of this larger literary community. Tyson, Julia, thank you guys so much. Um, I love you guys. Come to Rorschach. But whatever you guys do, you know, these are weird times, both from a writing perspective, but also from an art perspective and a political perspective and a life perspective. Just continue to do what I see you guys doing every single day, which is be there for each other, and let me know how I can help. And I love you guys. Thanks for coming. Eat and drink. I think you're the only author that mentioned Jessica Fletcher and the basis for yes. Right? It's an eclectic so. evening. <laughs> um, please buy the book at the front counter. You've been listening to the Skylight Books author reading series. Don't forget that you can listen to this and all of our other great podcasts at skylightbooks.com. Today's music was provided by Young Jesus. You can check them out at youngjesus.bandcamp.com. Thanks again for stopping by, and we hope to see you soon.